50,000 people. That is how many folks are expected to show up this weekend at a Houston football stadium to listen to President Trump speak. It is going to be packed to the rafters, but the audience is going to look a little bit different. These aren't going to be 50,000 ordinary Texans. These are going to be 50,000 raving, screaming, shouting Indian Americans in Houston, Texas. Milan Vaishnav is from Houston. He works in Washington now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. President Trump is sort of crashing this party that's being thrown for Narendra Modi, who's the prime minister of India. So the two of them are going to be sharing the stage together this Sunday, September 22nd. Millen, have you ever been to a Modi rally? Um, I have been to a Modi rally in India, and it is quite a scene of, you know, in India, getting a crowd of 50,000 people is like, you know, <laughs> having a little school assembly, right? So uh, <laughs> 50, but 50,000 people, you know, in a football stadium for a foreign leader is, is something altogether quite different. I mean, I read one article that was talking about the preparation for this and how everyone's just trying to think like, okay, who speaks first and how long? Because... Uh, Prime Minister Modi can speak for 90 minutes and so can Trump. That's right. And and Prime Minister Modi can speak for 90 minutes in perfect sentences without referring to a sheet of notes. He's done this before. And he has a reputation for being something of a showman, right? When Prime Minister Modi had a rally in the U.S. five years ago, he filled up Madison Square Garden. Modi walked onto the stage with his hands clasped in front of him, as if he was praying. Senator Chuck Schumer is right by his side. The crowd was chanting his name. It's going to be really interesting to watch because President Trump is is no shrinking violet, and he likes to be the star of the show. Uh, and here, you know, he's sort of the dessert or the appetizer. He's not really the the entree course, and and so. I sort of feel like he's going to say or do something that's going to make sure that the attention and the headlines uh, are showered on him rather than the prime minister. But we're going to have to wait and see what happens. Today on the show, Donald Trump and Narendra Modi lead two of the world's biggest democracies. Both of these democracies seem to be at turning points, which is why when they take the stage together, Millen says you should really be paying attention. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the things you need to know about the Indian prime minister is that for years, he wasn't allowed to set foot in the United States, much less have a rally here. This travel ban dates back to something that happened in his home state of Gujarat when Modi was still the chief minister there. 
In 2002, shortly after he'd taken office, um, horrific riots broke out. It was in early 2002 in Muslim neighborhoods in Ahmedabad and all across Gujarat that mobs of thousands of enraged Hindus exacted revenge on Muslims. More than a thousand people were killed. 75% or so were from the Muslim minority community. Muslims thought this kind of violence was not possible without help from the government, that the day would come when Muslims would not be able to live in Ahmedabad anymore. And there were two allegations made. One is that the Modi government actively encouraged Hindu mobs to kill Muslim citizens. And the other was a less strong claim, a much weaker claim, that they may not have actively encouraged, but they kind of looked the other way or, or maybe just were sort of ineffective and meek and couldn't stop it. Regardless, this left a real taint, a real tarnish on Mr. Modi. And in 2005, the U.S. government, the State Department, decided to uh, revoke his visa and not grant him a, a new visa under a kind of obscure international, a law that governed international religious freedom. So basically from 2005 to the time he became prime minister, 2014, we as a country really didn't have a diplomatic relationship with Narendra Modi. When did that change? So in 2013, as India approached its national election, which was in the spring of 2014, the U.S. government took a call that, look, he was now a mainstream, major national political figure, a very popular one. And all the polls suggested that he was likely to become the country's next prime minister. So in a fit of kind of realpolitik, uh, the United States decided that they were going to send their emissary, their ambassador in this case, to meet Modi and restart their relationship. Of course, there had been private discussions, probably unreported discussions, but officially uh, the U.S. had not engaged Mr. Modi. But I think there was a second thing, too, that was going on, which was that there was never any smoking gun found to link Mr. Modi personally to the 2002 riots. A number of investigations were undertaken. The Supreme Court, in fact, set up a special investigation to look into this. And they were never really able to find anything that linked Modi to the kind of command and control of these riots, so to speak. And so I think enough time had passed where the U.S. administration decided that they needed to sort of back down from their very harsh stance that they took about a decade earlier. It is an extraordinary pleasure to welcome uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, to the White House. Uh, for the first time. It was the Obama administration that decided to let Modi back into the country. Back in 2014, the president was hoping India and the U.S. could work together to fight climate change and prioritize clean energy. In fact, Barack Obama and when he was president and Prime Minister Modi hit it off famously. Um, and, and that's corroborated by conversations that I've had and many others have had with with aides on both sides. Um, I think Obama also bought into this idea that you know we are taking a strategic bet on India, that we need to let bygones be bygones. We have to deal with whoever is the democratically elected leader of India. And you know it's worth mentioning Narendra Modi also decided to put aside probably what was a lot of resentment on his part from being barred from the United States for you know almost 10 years to say it is in our country's interest to develop a strong relationship with the United States, both for selfish reasons, which is recognition, which for status, but also for investment, for trade, and for geopolitical help, for lack of a better word. Hmm. 
Let's talk a little bit about Narendra Modi's evolution as a politician, because I think it's it's really interesting and from the outside looks Trump-like. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big difference with Trump in that Narendra Modi for more than a dozen years was the effective governor of a serious state. And it wasn't just any state in India. During Modi's tenure, the state of Gujarat had the fastest economic growth rates of any state in India. So one claim to fame may have been his link to these Gujarat riots. His other claim to fame was that he was known for being a kind of good governance, pro-investment, pro-growth leader. And in 2013, 2014, India was suffering from an acute financial crisis. The incumbent government, which was being run by the Congress party, which has been since Indian independence in 1947, the dominant political formation in India, uh, was accused of uh, inept economic management, massive eye-popping kind of corruption scandals, and just a sense of kind of policy paralysis. And Narendra Modi was able to harness his strongman image, combined with the fact that um, he had a pretty strong economic record to say, look, if you make me prime minister, I will do what I did in my state for the entire country. So he talked uh, in Hindi about ushering Din. Din means the kind of good times, right? I mean, remember the, the going back to our own history about Ronald Reagan and it's kind of morning time in America again, right? So it was this sort of sense that we need to open up a new chapter of a booming middle class where we welcome foreign investment, where we create millions of jobs for India's young population. And that's kind of what was on offer in 2014. So he promised to boost the economy. He promised to get rid of corruption. Did he deliver on those promises? Well, I think the record is very mixed. So if you look at economic growth, uh, India is actually in the middle of a pretty severe economic downturn right now. We're seeing the slowest growth we've seen now in uh, seven or eight years. And this has happened on Modi's watch. Now, Modi's defenders will say, you know, we're seeing a global economic slowdown. We're seeing a lot of um, adverse in, uh, effects of the the U.S.-China trade dispute. But the fact of the matter is that there's been a number of policy measures which have actively harmed the Indian economy. And one of those was this crazy experiment called demonetization, which um, some of your listeners may have heard of back in 2016 when Modi decided in order to tackle corruption, which is the other pillar of his appeal, he was going to overnight invalidate almost 90% of Indian currency in an effort to crack down on people who were hoarding so-called black money. And this is in a place where the cash economy is everything. If you look at the status of the Indian economy, 10% of it is formal, roughly, and 90% of it is informal. And a lot of that informal enterprise takes place in cash. And so you get rid of high-value currency notes, and all of a sudden, cash dries up, business dries up, people can't make their payments, credit dries up. But a lot of those impacts right, are concentrated in the informal sector, which we don't even know how to capture that with data, because most of what hmm. we capture what goes into GDP, right, is is, is official government statistics. Um, so part and parcel of that and some other economic policy measures have led to this slowdown. So I would say the jury is still out. When Modi got reelected um, just a couple months ago in the spring of 2019, his pitch was simple, which is, I have started a 
on a path towards cleansing the economy, towards building the foundations for better growth, but you've only given me five years. I cannot undo 65 years of history in five years. So it was a version of you know, the argument that many politicians make, which is you know, don't change horses in midstream, right? Give me more time to carry out my vision. And I think most Indians said, yeah, that makes sense. He's tried to do a bunch of stuff in five years. Let's give him another five. What Modi didn't really discuss when he was first elected to lead India was one of the core issues of his political party, the BJP. The BJP advocates for Hindu majority rule, even though India is home to nearly 200 million Muslims. When Modi was running to stay prime minister this spring, his message changed. You can't campaign on the back of economic renewal when the economy is sort of slumping. So you saw a much darker, a more religiously colored campaign in which the prime minister himself kind of directly waded into majoritarian waters. I'll give you one concrete example. His arch nemesis, Rahul Gandhi, who is the uh, head of the Congress party, decided to contest elections from a seat in the state of Kerala, which is in India's south, which has a very large Muslim population and also very large Christian population. And the prime minister essentially made statements to the effect of, Rahul Gandhi had to run scared to this minority-dominated constituency because that's the only place he could win an election. He had to go to kind of a quote-unquote lesser constituency to win, right? So there were statements like that being made not only by the prime minister, but also by the party president, Amit Shah, who has been Narendra Modi's right hand going back to his time as chief minister. He's today the second most important politician in India. He's the home minister by all accounts. He kind of acts as the deputy prime minister. And he gave statements about the perils of illegal immigration, where he promised that he was going to expel the quote unquote termites who had infected the body politic in India. So this is some pretty strong stuff coming from both Modi and his key allies in government. At the end of the day, despite all this evidence about Modi's potential shortcomings, when they went to the polls this spring, many Indian voters seemed to decide they just liked the guy. People in their gut in India, I'm talking here about the average voter, likes Modi. They want to give him the benefit of the doubt. They believe that he's incorruptible, that he operates with the national interest, that he's taking a long-term view. And so they were looking for a way to justify to some folks that, that they were going to vote for him. And they happened to get one on a silver platter. We saw a terrorist attack take place in Jammu and Kashmir, this contested state that both India and Pakistan claim. This terrorist attack was sponsored by an organization that's based in Pakistan. They killed 40 Indian soldiers. And this happened just on the eve of elections. And so that injected another dose of kind of nationalism and muscularity into the election conversation that Modi was able to, to use to his advantage. And he won uh, the second consecutive single party majority in parliament. Now, just to give you a sense of how rare that is, when Modi got a majority in parliament in 2014, that was the first time it had happened in 30 years. Hmm. And now he has a lot more power. So he not only got a majority again, he actually went up in terms of his vote share, his party's vote share, and is the number of seats. India is a federal country like the United States, so its states have a lot of power and authority. India has 29 states. 
18 of those are controlled by the BJP and their allies. India also has an upper house of parliament like our Senate, but unlike our Senate, it's not directly elected by the voter. It's indirectly selected by the state houses. And so when you control more state houses, that means you can also change the composition of the upper house. And so they are about 12 seats short now of claiming a majority in the upper house. And the reason that's important is because most pieces of legislation have to be given the assent from both houses. If you want to amend the constitution, you've got to get both houses on board. So this is something that's going to be easier to do in, in the coming months and years for BJP and for Modi. Before we talk about what's going to happen this weekend, I feel like we have to talk about one more thing, which is that this summer we really saw Prime Minister Modi using this power that he has developed in how he behaved in Jammu and Kashmir. Can you tell the story a little bit about what happened this August? Sure. So uh, when the Indian constitution was written, Jammu and Kashmir had a special constitutional status that was codified by something known as Article 370. Unlike the rest of India, Jammu and Kashmir is majority Muslim. And for decades, it has had a special status, including its own powerful legislature that can block laws that pass in India's capital, Delhi. The BJP has always argued for revoking this special status. And this summer, without warning, Prime Minister Modi did just that. Narendra Modi finally decided to take the bull by the horns. He unilaterally abrogated Section 370 of the Constitution, therefore uh, incorporating this state fully into the Indian Union. Now, the constitutional methods by which he did this are somewhat dubious. There are challenges in the courts right now to say that you couldn't have done this without the assent of the state. He did not get the assent of the state. But that's something that could take a, a while to, to resolve. The thing to point out is this is a move that is extremely popular in India. I bet if we did an opinion survey of Indians, 70 or 80 percent would be supportive of this move that, you know, here's this thing which had been sticking out like a sore thumb that was kind of part of India, sort of had its own thing going on. We're just going to swallow it up and, and make it part of the Indian Union. But in order to do that, Modi put the entire state on lockdown. He cut off landline telephones. He cut off all mobile service. He rounded up the political opposition in the state and put them under house arrest. This is something that took place on August 5th. Here we are recording in mid-September. All of those political leaders are still under house arrest. They have hmm. gradually eased up on some of the communication blockade, but still in the valley, which is the part of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which has been racked by insurgency, which has been racked by conflict, and is also the Muslim dominant part of the state, we still see uh, a communications blockade. Is it striking to you that while all this is happening back at home in India, the president would appear on stage with Narendra Modi for what's essentially a pep rally? Well, I certainly think that there's no question that in this administration compared to previous administrations that talk about democracy, human rights, individual liberties is not, shall we say, at the forefront of their uh, agenda. So in that sense, it's not a surprise. But I think what is really interesting is how little conversation there is uh, in the United States really about Jammu and Kashmir. We've seen a few members of Congress, a few senators write letters, um, express concern. 
There are going to be hearings held on the Hill to talk about the human rights scenario in all of South Asia. Undoubtedly, this will come up. But I think, broadly speaking, both Democrats and Republicans in the United States have taken a long strategic bet on India that it is in our interests to work with India, to cultivate our relationship, to broaden our relationship, not only because India is a democracy, but also because India is potentially the only hedge or any balance that we have against China. And the China threat looms very large uh, in Washington, D.C. India and the U.S. are expected to announce a trade deal when the president and the prime minister meet. I'm wondering what we should be looking for out of that, because back when Obama was in charge, it seemed like India and the United States were talking about clean energy a lot. And of course, this administration feels very differently about that. So how do we expect that this trade deal might look different than what we've seen before? So I think... First principles, this Trump administration is an administration that is highly transactional, which whereas previous presidents took a bet on India saying, it is in our interest to do good things for India, whether that's trade, whether that's investment, whether that's you know, defense deals, in a in a way of of, of basically, you know, strategic altruism basically towards India, which is in fact what the strategy has been called by some. I think the Trump administration takes a very different view. And so I think what we're going to see are probably pretty minor concessions from the Indian side. They have always limited market access to U.S. agrarian producers. And in exchange, the Trump administration has taken away uh, something called the GSP, which are unilateral trade preferences we give to a lot of developing countries. And so I think there's might be a swap there to be had. It'll be pretty minor. It's not going to address all of the fundamental issues in our relationship, but it's going to allow both sides to claim victory and to sort of make sure that any negative energy kind of stays out of, uh, of that stadium. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about President Trump and Narendra Modi, and it seems like both of them could use an economic win right now. I think that's absolutely right. I think that... Um, Sentiment in India on the economy is pretty low. And I think here, too, in the United States, Trump really doesn't have a lot to show for a lot of his trade spats, right? Um, and so what I think the White House is looking to do in India, but in Japan and with other countries as well, is, is put together a set of mini trade deals that will essentially allow him to say, you see, I said we we're going to get a deal and now we get a deal. And He's hoping, I think, that people aren't really going to focus too much on the details because I think these probably will be kind of small peanuts compared to what was promised at the beginning. You know, before a visit a few years back, the New York Times polled Indians living in the United States and asked them how they felt about the prime minister. And the majority were really excited to see Modi. Do you think that would still be true today? A hundred percent. You know, I... Turns out, I'm from Houston, Texas, where this rally is taking place. My parents still live there. Um, uh, they're pretty deeply embedded in the Indian community there. And when I go back home and I talk to Indian Americans there from all walks of life, of all ages, of all backgrounds, they are very supportive of, of this prime minister. I think they believe that he's somebody who has really put India on the map. You know, I think there's a feeling amongst Indians in India and those in the diaspora that India has always been this big country, but it's never really been seen as an important country. 
that it should rightfully have a seat at the global high table. It should rightfully be seen as a civilizational power, as a great power. And I think they think that you know Modi basically has a vision that's pretty much in line with that. And although, again, progress has been slow, I think they're not willing to um, shy away from him just yet. Milan Vaishnav, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Milan Vaishnav is the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. All right, that is the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. If you are listening to this show in Texas, where Narendra Modi is going to be this weekend, I'm going to be there. Not this weekend, like in a couple days. At the Texas Tribune Festival, Austin, Texas, September 26th, come out and say hey. I'm going to be taping an interview with former Senator Jeff Flake and Wendy Davis. She is running for Congress down there. Come and see us. For tickets and information, go to festival.texastribune.org. All right, I'm Mary Harris. I am going to talk to you Monday. Monday. 